So in this series, we've been talking about tithing. Um, what we established uh, in the first uh, episode of this series is that tithing is just not something that Christians are expected to do. It's, it's not a new covenant practice. Um, it's just, again, it's not something we, we, we need to participate in. But there were principles involved in tithing. And so there was two, really just two primary things that the tithe uh, functioned or, or, or served to um, to uh, look after. Firstly, was um, looking after the Levites, so looking after the ministers. Um, they didn't have any land that they owned. They had no means of producing food, and so they required so uh, the rest of the people to support them. Uh, and so that was what the tithe primarily served. But then the second purpose of the tithe was to look after the landless, those who didn't have any means of production. Remembering this is a time before money, so all of your wealth is in land ownership. And so if you don't own land, you don't have any wealth, you don't have any means of providing food for yourself, and so you need to be looked after. So the widows and the orphans and um, the, the foreigners and those that just don't have any, uh, any claim to any land. So last week we looked at that principle. We looked at looking after those in the community, um, those that don't have, um, the, or they just need support. And we see that carries through into the New Testament. It's one of the primary functions of the Christian community was to look after those in need in amongst their community who have uh, either just a short-term uh, emergency need or long-term needs, like the widows who w- would otherwise just be left to die. They, they would have had no other means of support. And so the, the, the Christian community was expected to participate in, in helping to support them. Um, but there was not a 10% principle. It wasn't, this is what we, we pay tithes and so that we do this. There was no talk about tithing in the New Testament. There, there is no t- talk about tithing. What the Christians were expected to do was to contribute out of their means. Uh, and so on one hand, Paul says to those who are rich, um, you know, be generous in good deeds, be generous in giving this sort of patronage that we require. Uh, and so a lot of the primary financial burden would have been on the rich people in the community, those that had excess resource that could um, help a lot of people, which is what you do in the ancient world. If you're rich, you help people out. That's um, You become a patron to um, to the poor amongst in the city, which there are plenty of, um, but it, and it's one of the ways that you gain on for yourself. So this whole patron client situation is the um, replacement, or it, it's it's what they had instead of government support. Um, we 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 take for granted that we have government support that helps us in our various situations. They didn't have any of that, so. That role was taken by patrons, wealthy people in the city, who for the for the honour that they gained by looking after all of these people, took care of the needs of many, even hundreds of people uh, within their community. And so, when we come to the Christian community, the rich people were expected to do the same. They were expected to give uh, of their wealth to help the poor amongst the Christian community. The difference being that it wasn't to gain honour for themselves. They they would have by virtue of the culture, received honour, but that wasn't the point. The, the point was to do the work of God. The point was that all of the glory would go back to God. And so there was a, a humility that was, was required uh, in that process. Uh, and so that's how the, the poor are looked after. And amongst the rest of the Christians who have very little, who are themselves the poor, um, there was an expectation to participate, but again, only according to their means. Paul was really clear about this. Don't give what you don't have. Give according to your means and according to your willingness. Whatever that looks like is going to reflect whatever you have and whatever you're willing to give. But again, so there's no measure here. There's no, you must give 10% and then we distribute that to uh, to everybody else in the community. So giving is expected. That's It is part of what we're supposed to do as Christians and that carries through today. Um, there's various um, people within our community that might need help. There's the international Christian community, um, particularly for that, us here in the West. We are very affluent, very wealthy. We have a lot of excess. And so it's easier for us to help support Christians in places that don't have the wealth that we have. Uh, and so that's one of our obligations. So we looked at all of that, but there was a second principle as uh, about tithing that we talked about, and that was to support the ministry. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at this week. So what we saw last week was that the church community didn't have the sort of expenses that we have today. 
Um, they didn't have utilities. They didn't exist. They didn't have electricity or running water or rent or, you know, um, paying for large buildings to accommodate hundreds or thousands of people. That wasn't a reality. They, they met in people's houses. And so the only real financial requirement that they had was somebody who owned a house. And so you're not paying rent to the house owner. The person owns the house and it's their privilege to be able to open the house up to have a church meeting in. Now, adding to that would be the fact that the church communities themselves would have been built around existing family units. So we read this quite often in the New Testament when um, Paul would baptize a household. Uh, so we see this in Corinth. When he gets to Corinth in Corinthians 18, um, he baptizes the household of Crispus. He says later on to the, to the Corinthians, I baptize the household of Stephanus. Uh, we see it again in Acts when they baptize the household of Cornelius. So when you create a Christian community, you create it in the, with the existing family that already live in the house. So the church itself was the family that already lived there. So they own the house. Uh, so there's no expenses there. Uh, when it comes to the biggest expense, which is a building, a place to meet. That just didn't happen. That wasn't something I had to pay for. Uh, and beyond that, the only real expense that they had was the, for the meal. Uh, every week they would come together and have a meal, and that was what church was. Someone had to pay for that, so everybody would contribute their little bit. And very likely what would happen would be that everyone would contribute a little bit of money uh, whatever they might have, and that, that would be pulled together to pay for the food to have the meal. So that's really the only expense, the only only weekly ongoing expense you have as a community because apart from that, really all you are doing as a church is being a community within the city. Uh, and communities don't cost money. It's relationship. That's what they're building here. Uh, they're, they're, apart from looking after the community members as needs arise, there's no expense of being part of that community. You're just in a relationship with this group of people. Uh, and so, again, there's no um, – we don't need to be giving a regular weekly offering to support all of the financial needs of the church because, again, they just don't exist. But what you do have, certainly in the early church, are traveling teachers. And this is especially true of the apostles. What we see of the apostles – is that they travel from city to city and they become, they are the primary authorities in that early church. And so it's required of them to travel from city to city and go from church to church to encourage and to strengthen. Um, we, this is what Paul does. Paul travels around and plants churches. This is his whole MO. He goes from city to city, he plants churches, and then he leaves behind or he raises up from within the city teachers who carry on the ongoing work. And so he'll go to a place like Corinth, plant churches, and then um, establish Corinthian teachers who will continue on the preaching and the teaching that he left behind. So again, those people there don't, um, they, they don't need pay. They're, they're not doing this as a full-time job. They're doing this just as a part of their membership in the community. But for Paul... Someone like him traveling around, there is an expense that he does require support because his full-time uh, job, his full-time ministry is traveling around and preaching, planting churches. He can't do other work. Well, he can, but as we're going to see, he would prefer not to because that takes away time from the important role, which he's gifted to do, which is to go and plant churches and to go and uh, strengthen and to encourage those churches that he's previously planted. So the, what we're saying here is that there is this sort of one um, primary ministry that does require support. Um, there's, there's no real other weekly or, or local ministries that need to be paid, but somebody like Paul absolutely does. So what does that look like? What, what does that mean um, for the church? How do they go about supporting a guy like Paul? Or how does he support himself? What does that look like in practical reality? And importantly, what does that mean for us today? How do we sort of transfer that into today's context? Well, that's going to be the topic of this particular episode. So to understand Paul um, and, and his uh, occupation, one of the, um, I, I guess, 
uh, assumptions or one of the attitudes that we have that we sometimes hear in church is this idea that says that uh, a pastor shouldn't um, should go and get a real job that we we shouldn't pay pastors because Paul made tents and he preached on the side and, and so it's it, it's a pessimistic sort of outlook but it's it's used as a reason to not pay pastors to expect that um, a pastor who's doing the work of pastor in a church and looking after a community um, and presumably raising a family at the same time also needs to um, go and work in a full-time job in order to support himself or herself and the family and all the rest of it. Uh, now, it's a, it's a really kind of disgusting idea. It's, I mean, it, part, excuse my pessimism here, but it's such a terrible reading of the text. It's such a terrible uh, interpretation of, of who Paul was and what he did. And the consequences are that a pastor is doing all of the work of the ministry, looking after a church, looking after everybody's needs and all of their rubbish, and then at the same time having to work a full-time job and having to take care of the family if there's any time left over to even spend time with the family because this, the, the pastor's so busy with the job and with the church, um, that it's inevitably going to lead to burnout. Now, again, there's different circumstances, and we'll come back to those later on. But the point is that we've got this um, idea based on what we assume um, Paul did in his particular um, ministry style, how it is that he went about looking after himself. So I want to look at that. I want to sort of try to unpack uh, how Paul actually went about. And we talk about his tent making, quote unquote, his tent making. That was his trade. That was what he did to support himself. And he sort of preached as a side as a side thing. Uh, what did that actually look like though? What, what was that in reality? Well, I guess to illustrate it, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. So I'm actually a spray painter by trade. So back, you know, when I was a younger person, um, sort of 20 odd years ago, I, w- I got a trade spray painting cars. And this was prior to my becoming a Christian. In fact, I became a Christian while I was doing the spray painting. And, and so I have this trade. I have this skill set that um, is can be applied to a job. It is a job. It's something I could do professionally if I was to ever go back to wanting to spray paint. It's this. It's it's just the skill set that I've got. But for me, my uh, profession, my occupation is a college lecturer. I teach New Testament at Alpha Crucis College, and that's my full time job. But it's more than a job for me. This is my ministry. What I do at college, what I'm doing here is what I feel to be what God has called me to do. Uh, And so for me, this is my full-time occupation. This is what um, I'm uniquely gifted, I think, to do. Um, And so for that reason, that's what I get paid for. That's, That's how I make a living. That's how I support my family. Now, using that argument of, um, you know, pastors should make tents, that would suggest that what I need to do is um, do all of my teaching for free, do all of my service for the college as um, uh, for free, and I should go and spray paint cars to support that. So whatever I do for God should be done for free, and I need to look after myself in this other job. Now, the reality is that I actually do a little bit of spray painting on the side. Um, it's actually, it sort of supplements some of my income. It's a bit of a hobby, um, a bit of a side hustle, but I could very easily and very happily walk away from it because it's my job, my income comes from me doing the lecture and I, my, the college for which to, that I work for pays me so that I can do the work um, that is also at the same time the ministry that God has called me to do. So that's kind of an example of what we see in Paul. Paul's profession, quote unquote, his profession was to be a traveling apostle. Jesus called him uh, not to be a tradesman. Jesus called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That was what Jesus commissioned him to do. And so the expectation of that is that that is what his primary, all of his time and all of his, um, all of his effort is to go towards because it's a big task and Paul is much more effective spending all of his time doing the work of that apostleship than doing anything else. However, he was also, he had a trade. He had, um, well, we, we would say tent making, but it's actually not tent making. Tent making was a subset of the trade, which was leather working. So Paul was a leather worker. 
Um, that that was the skill. It's it's a bit like saying um, that somebody builds house frames. Well, you build house frames because you're a carpenter. Your trade is carpentry. And so you can build lots of things out of timber, including house frames. It's just one of the many things that you can do. In the same way, Paul's skill set was leatherworking. That meant that he had the ability to make anything out of leather, including tents, but it could include bags or saddles or shoes or um, any number of things that... Uh, that were made out of leather. That was his skill set. Now, it's a very convenient trade for him to have. You know, compare it to a blacksmith, for example. You know, a blacksmith needs, at the very least, a furnace. They need big hammers. They need anvils. They need lots of extremely heavy equipment that once it's set up, it really can't be moved. So being a blacksmith is fine, but you're stuck where you are, right? Moving your trade around is almost impossible to do, certainly on a regular basis. Leatherworking is a different thing. Leatherworking only requires some knives, some threads, some needles. You could really carry your whole toolkit in a pouch. So for Paul, traveling on the road, he always has his trade with him. So it's actually the ideal trade to be a part of or to, or to have for the sort of calling, for the sort of work that you um, that he's called to do. Now, where Paul learned it, we don't know. We just don't know where he picked up this skill set. But nevertheless, that was um, what he actually had. That was his trade that he had. Now, uh, but again, coming back to the main point, Paul's profession then was that he was a traveling apostle. Now, the um, the equivalent of that or, or the category that that fits into was that he was a traveling teacher. So that was what he was. His primary role was as a teacher. And there were plenty of teachers in the ancient world. And there was kind of a set way in which teachers would uh, support themselves or be supported. In fact, there was three sort of key ways that a student would be, uh, that a teacher would be paid. The first way was that they would collect student fees. So the typical school was that a teacher would have a group of students who would um, stay with him or you know, even live with him or um, be with him all the time. And quite often students would travel from other parts of the world to come and learn from this particular teacher. And so he, this particular teacher might set up a, a room in the local gymnasium or in a house or wherever the facilities themselves were secondary to the point that the, the school itself was the teacher. So the way that this particular teacher makes his living is that he would collect fees. At the end of the year, the parents would pay the uh, the, the teacher for what he what he'd done for the kids, and it was a bit dodgy because the, the the parents could just as easily turn around and say, "Well, I don't like what you've done. I don't think you've done a good enough job with my son, and so I'm just not going to pay you." And there's nothing the teacher could do about it. You really just sort of have to go on good faith that the, you're even going to get paid at the end of the year. So it's a pretty tough way to make a living. Um, you know, it, to, to become a teacher required a lot of education, but it actually quite often didn't pay off. Unless you're an extremely famous and very popular teacher, generally you're really scraping to make a living. But that's one of the primary ways that a teacher can make uh, can make an income. Another way that they could do it was they could travel from town to town. So they could go from city to city and they could, you know, offer their abilities, they could teach, they could just be a, a well-known traveling teacher. And when they came to the city, they could expect that people are going to look after them. In, we talk about a moment ago about patrons looking after the poor in the city. Another thing that a patron could do is to look after a traveling teacher. And this was a real mark of pride. You know, they say to all your friends, hey, when that teacher came to town, that teacher stays, stayed with me. He's staying with me. And so it's like, wow, you must have, you must be a really important person for that teacher to come and stay with you. You must be a generous person because you can look after this teacher. But the point being that whilst the teacher is in town, they would expect that somebody's going to look after them in a very, in a sort of ancient Mediterranean society where hospitality is a virtue. That's never going to be an issue. You're always going to find somewhere to stay. And for the host, that's going to bring great honor for you. So that's another way you can do it. You can just go from town to town and be looked after wherever you end up. Another way you could um, become 
uh, or be paid or be supported is that you could become an intellectual client to somebody. And so in this situation, again, it requires a patron, but that patron who looks after the poorer people in the city, those poor people, they, they kind of become their, they, they become their clientele. Uh, they kind of become their followers. Uh, and so you, you're always going to see these clients hanging around with their patron. It's just one of the reciprocal things they can give back. They can't pay the patron back, but they can sort of hang around with them and give them the honor and the status of having this big following of people. Well, amongst those clients, you could also have your own personal philosopher. And what this does is it kind of makes you look, it's kind of like carrying around a library with you everywhere you go. You know, it's like I'm so wealthy and I'm so um, so sophisticated that I have my own personal philosopher. That's amongst my, ver- my, my retinue of different people that are dependent on me. One of them happens to be uh, an intellectual. And so all of that just gives honor to the patron. And, but for what, so what it means for the, uh, for the teacher, for the client, it's on the one hand, it means that you've got a steady income. It means that you don't ever have to worry about where your next meal's coming from. You always got a nice place to live. You've been looked after by this wealthy patron. So for you, it takes the burden off where am I going to get my next meal from? On the other hand, however, it means that you're owned. You effectively have become a slave. You don't have any real say in where you go or what you do because your job is to do whatever this patron tells you to do. And so it could be that, hey, I'm having guests over tonight, we're going to have a meal, and I want you to provide some entertainment. I want you to give a speech or to discuss philosophy or whatever it is that your skill set is. You, you basically have, sort of have to come and go at the whim of the master. You're, again, you effectively have become a slave in exchange for uh, having a living as an intellectual. So these are some of the different ways in which a teacher could exp- could hope to make an income. Now, what's really interesting about this is that at least in the second two, we see this play out um, precisely in the New Testament, both with Paul, but then also with Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at now. Okay, so let's look first at Jesus. Now, Jesus was a traveling teacher, quite obviously. Um, now he had students with him. The twelve disciples, disciples, the the Greek word, uh, the, the the word disciple comes from the Latin word discipulus, which just means a student. It's the translation of the Greek methetes. So Jesus was a teacher who had students that that travelled along with him. Now the difference was that these students weren't paying Jesus. All right, he'd called them away from their careers and their occupations to follow him with the plan that they would become travelling teachers themselves. Now. That's all good and well, but that leaves the question then, how did they eat, right? I mean, if they were spending their their days preaching and teaching and casting out demons and healing the sick and all the things that they were doing, where did the food come from, right? Who was looking after them? Well, in that case, they needed patrons. They needed people to do that provision for them so that they could be freed to do the work of the minister, to do the work of preaching. And so we see this in Luke 8, verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus traveled from one city and village to another. He spread the good news about God's kingdom. The twelve apostles were with him. Also, some women were with him. These women were Mary, also called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, whose husband Chusa was Herod's administrator, Susanna, and many other women. They provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. So he's specifically answering the question of who fed Jesus? How did they get the money to eat every day. Specifically, it came from these women. And so what we see in this model is the, the, the sort of the intellectual client model, right? Jesus was traveling from place to place, but he had his patrons with him all the time. He had these uh, permanent supporters of the ministry. Now, there's a twist on this example. The, what I said before was that when you become an intellectual client to a patron, they become your boss, right? They own you. You're, you're effectively a slave in, in all but name when you uh, enter into one of those relationships. This was a bit different in that, yes, these women were Jesus' patron, but clearly he wasn't. they weren't his boss. They weren't saying to Jesus, well, I think you should go to Galilee today, or I think you should go to Nazareth. Or, uh, they, they had no say over where he went. They were just his supporters, but in that permanent sense. 
And so they recognized, Jesus recognized that his calling, his role, his occupation needed to be preaching, and that's what he needed to be freed to do. And so somebody else had to look after the financial requirements, which primarily meant buying food. Again, that was these women. Now we see something, uh, another example, two chapters later in Luke 10. So this is Jesus to talking to the disciples. He says, go, I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not go and greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Okay, we're going to actually come back to that last statement there uh, later on in the podcast. But here we've got the second model that we talked about, which was a, a traveling teacher going from city to city expecting support. Now, do you notice here that Jesus doesn't say, uh, when you go to a city, look around and ask people to look after you. Find, um, you know, go and hopefully, maybe we'll try this new idea out that maybe somebody will very kindly take you in. Notice he doesn't say that. The expectation is when they get to the city, someone's going to look after them. In a Mediterranean culture where hospitality is a virtue, where patronage and the honor of having somebody come and stay with you is paramount, there's no question that somebody's going to look after you. The only question is, who is it going to be? How do you distinguish the right person to stay with? That's all we're really concerned about here. And so these, this sort of example, what Jesus is setting them up, is showing them kind of how their future is going to look. Because when we look at the course of the life of all of these apostles, that's what they ultimately become. They become traveling teachers who are going to have a life where they, they don't necessarily know where the next meal is going to come from. What they All they're going to do is travel to a place and, and find somebody to, to take care of them. But that's going to be how they're going to be making their living from now on. This is, they're not going to get rich in this. What they're going to get is enough food to, to live for that day and the next day or for however much they, they stay there and they move on to the next place. And this is how it's going to be. They're, they're no longer fishermen, tax collectors, and all of the different trades that they used to do. Now they are going to be full-time teachers. And when they separate, you know, when it's no longer these women we just mentioned looking after the group, when they're by themselves for the years to come, it's a new way of doing things. It's this different type of model that they're, uh, that they're going to live by. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. I really hope you're finding this podcast helpful. Uh, if you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review. That's really going to help spread the podcast further. And uh, you might also enjoy the YouTube channel and other social media attached to the New Testament story. You can find the link for these in the show notes. And you might even consider supporting the channel financially, speaking about money and support. Um, you might consider doing that. And if, you, if that's the case, then you can do that also through that same link. Uh, but anyway, back to the show. All right, so that was Jesus' example. What about Paul? What about Paul and his quote-unquote tent making? What did that actually look like in reality? Well, we get two really clear examples of this. First one is, is when he goes into Thessalonica. So I read this 1 Thessalonians 1.5. It says, As you know, we never used flattery or schemes to make money. In other words, unlike some of these traveling teachers, Paul's competitors were traveling teachers who were just in it for the money. They were just going from town to town, putting on a show to get as much money as they possibly can. That was their whole profession, but it was just, it was a fraud in that it wasn't really about any mean, meaningful content. It was just, just about performers. That's, that's all it was. And, and so what Paul's saying is that we weren't, we weren't like those guys. We weren't just in it for the money. When we came to you, we came as traveling teachers. Yes. Looking for support. Yes. But what we had to offer you was something life-changing. It was, it was valuable. Uh, it wasn't just us putting on a show. So he says, we never used flattery or schemes to make money. God is our witness. We didn't seek praise from people, from you or from anyone else. Although as apostles of Christ, we had the right to do this. So this is such an important point. Paul says to the Thessalonians, we had the right to demand from you support. We, we should have been paid. We were called by God to be apostles to the Gentiles, to exactly you. We were, the, we were sent by God to you. And so 
as traveling teachers, when we were staying with you, as the model that Jesus himself uh, established, you should have looked after us. And we had the right to demand this. If you're part of the Christian community in Thessalonica and we're the apostles to that community, you should have paid us. As simple as that. And so when we came to you, but he says, when we came to you, we weren't we weren't doing that. We, we weren't trying to be these um, showy teachers. And even more than that, we, weren't, we didn't even make that demand, even though we could have. So he goes on verse 7. We were like young children amongst you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. So even though we had a right to demand from you that support, and it was one of your obligations as the community to support us when we were with you, we didn't make use of that. Instead, Paul says, we worked amongst you. We paid our own way. In this case, for Paul, it would have included leatherworking. So he probably would have established himself with other leather workers and he would have just worked alongside them, talking about Jesus while they were working. Now, that would have been a huge hindrance for Paul. That would have held him back substantially in his ability to freely preach. If you're stuck in a workshop, you can't travel around the city and preach. You can't move around amongst the community, you're stuck in that one place. So it's a massive hindrance. And it was actually of detriment to Paul and his ministry and his ability to extend himself in Thessalonica. So the question you have to ask yourselves is why? why? Why did he do this? Why did he refuse to take any support from them, but instead looked after himself? Well, the answer is really simple. They couldn't afford it. They just simply couldn't afford it. One of the recurring um, themes that through this podcast is this re- re- recognition that the people of the ancient world lived at subsistence level poverty. They didn't have enough money to feed themselves, let alone somebody else. Right? The the very little excess they might have had that that's that's going to go towards the absolutely impoverished, the widows, those who've got absolutely nothing and no other means of looking after themselves. So Paul comes along and he says, hey, look, I can make my own money. I don't need you guys to impoverish yourselves just so that I can eat. I'll, I'll, I'll take the hit. I'll make the sacrifice. I'll, I'll, I'll work. I'll do my leather working so that I don't become a burden to you so that you're not being impoverished while I'm preaching to you the love and grace and giving of Jesus Christ, which would just be ironic. Hey, Jesus gave everything of himself so that you could live, and I'm going to take everything you've got to preach that message to you. It just completely undermines everything you're trying to achieve there. So Paul says, I'm not going to do that, right? I'm not going to impoverish you so that I can eat. No, that's just not the way this is, this is ever going to work. So the simple reason why Paul made tents or did his leather working in Thessalonica was because they couldn't afford him, plain and simple. He would have, otherwise, he said, I could have demanded it from you, but I didn't because to demand it from you would have impoverished you. And that's absolutely not something I was willing to do because it just completely undermines the whole message of Christ. All right, so after Paul left Thessalonica, he went down to Corinth and we see exactly the same thing happening in Corinth, only for different reasons. So we pick up the story. It's Acts 18.1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, so the word there, tent maker, is is better translated as leather worker, uh, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So in this particular situation, Paul arrives in Corinth, and the first people that he finds are fellow Jewish travelers who have in common a trade. So that makes a lot of sense because it means that automatically he can go and stay with them and work with them. He he would have, the, the, the workshop that they were in would have been attached to a house as all of these um, places were, and so he would have lived with them, worked in their shop, and 
they're there to make money. Like, I mean, when you're walking into a town, you don't know anyone else, you at the very least need to support yourself. You need to be able to feed yourself. You're not just going to, um, you know, just walk in and take what you want. He needs, he needed to at least establish some sort of base, some sort of community. And that's who he does, what he does here with Aquila and Priscilla. So he works with them in the workshop, same thing as he would have done in Thessalonica. Um, and from there, use that as a base to begin this new Christian community. However, what we find in Corinth is a different set of circumstances. Now, I, we don't have the time to unpack this. Over the course of this podcast, particularly when we look at Corinthians, we'll go into a bit more detail about this particular situation. But what seems to have happened is that somebody in the uh, in Corinth, somebody within this new Christian community, had actually offered Paul support. They'd said to Paul, we will support you, as opposed to in Thessalonica where it would have been a case of, um, you know, just Paul sort of demanding it from somebody. Somebody's come to Paul and said, we want to look after you. Now, again, we saw that that's a normal practice, right? Somebody says, I want to um, become your patron, I want to look after you, um, and that's the great honour for the teacher. But in Corinth, it seemed to be different. What they seemed to have offered Paul in Corinth was the third model, which was the intellectual client model. What they had said to Paul was, not only do we want to support you, we want you to become part of our clientele. We want you to become our full-time pastor. So, you know, you've got your own personal philosopher. Well, in this case, they've got their own personal apostle. So what they're actually offering Paul is a permanent job amongst their retinue as this uh, as this regular um, apostle, as, as their regular preacher. Now, if Paul was just a regular philosopher, just a regular teacher, that would have been a great offer, right? That would have been, they probably would have snapped it up. Yeah, for sure. I'll become your client. I, you know, if it means that I never have to worry about where my next meal's coming from, that's great. That, that works really well. Uh, and so, again, that's a normal sort of circumstance in this context. But Paul had a problem with that, quite obviously, because if he's literally working for this group or this particular person, then he can't be free to preach to everybody else. He has to go, come and go at the whims of his boss, right? I mean, he is an employed apostle, which is just absolutely antithetical to his calling, which was to be a servant first and foremost and only to Jesus Christ. And so he actually, you know, he says later on in Corinthians 9, hey, I need to be free to preach to everyone, to slaves, to Jews, to Greeks. I, I can't be bound to one person. I need to be free to preach to, to everybody. And so Paul is refusing this offer. Now, this becomes a real problem later on. And we, again, when we talk about Corinthians in a few weeks, we're going to see how this unpacks. But this is a real affront. This is a real problem um, in this refusal to offer this, to receive this support. Uh, and it causes Paul all kinds of problems. But this is what Paul has to do. He has to refuse this and so instead go and make tents. Now, that kind of doubles the offense because to become to be a tradesman, to be a, a laborer like Paul was, was a low status thing, particularly amongst the elites who don't work, right? I mean, they're rich, they don't have to work. To be a, a, a slavish um, tradesman like Paul, that's a mark of indignity. And so not only has he refused to live amongst the elites and you know collect all of their money, um, instead of doing that, he's gone and he's chosen to work amongst the, the lowly scum of, of the community. So it's a real affront that Paul has, has done here, but his reasoning is quite clear. I can't be owned by you. I have to be free to do the work of Christ. Now, the problem when we read this passage is that we take that and that's the one we use to say, hey, pastors shouldn't, should go and get a real job, quote unquote, real job, and do ministry for free. Just like Paul did, Paul made tents in Corinth, and so therefore every pastor should do that. But what it fails to notice is the very next verse, verse 5. It says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching the minute Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Now, what happened? How, how was it that Paul could suddenly preach full-time? Well, because they'd brought money. 
they had brought support from Macedonia. In fact, this is the whole purpose of the letter to, to Philippians, which we're going to look at in a few weeks, which was Paul thanking them for their ongoing financial support. What the Macedonians had become to Paul were his sponsors. They had become kind of like kind of like when your church sends out a missionary and they fund the missionary and they don't say, well, you have to go here and do this and do these particular things. It's like go and do whatever is required where you're going. We'll just pay you to do it. We'll support you so that you're free to do it so that you don't have to go over there and make tents. Um, you can be free to preach wherever you are. This is exactly what the Macedonians had done for Paul. They they'd, he, he had kind of become their... Um, their first mission sponsor. So when Silas and Timothy arrive, what they bring is the first down payment or the first installment of this support, which means that Paul doesn't have to make tents anymore. So what we notice about this is that Paul made tents because he had to, because the alternative was to become, to be owned by a particular person. But the minute he didn't have to work, make tents, he put it away. He went and devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Because now he had the financial resources to do that, but resources that didn't come with strings, which is what the Corinthians had actually been offering him. So carry the story on. And I want to sort of see how this comes to a little bit of a head in 1 Corinthians 9. But there's a couple of points in here that I really want to sort of draw out um, in the context of this passage. So he goes on, and this is Paul kind of responding now um, to the Corinthians' offense. They'd been offended that he'd refused their support, and so now he's having to give an account for um, for that offense. And so this is what he has to say to them later on. He says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Does the law, doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses... Do not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. I'm going to come back to that verse in a moment. Do not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yet, yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we've sown spiritual seed amongst you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? All right, so let's unpack this a little bit. So this is the Corinthians saying to Paul, hey man, we offered you money, we offered you support, and you refused it. We were so generous in offering you financial support, and you just threw it back in our faces. That's very offensive, Paul. What do you have to say for yourself? Now, Paul doesn't even bite. He completely flips the script and he says, hang on a second, uh, a soldier doesn't serve at his own expense, right? Uh, someone who plants a vineyard expects that they're going to share in the grapes. You know, whoever the shepherd is going to drink the milk that the, the sheep and the cattle provide, right? There is an expectation that if I'm doing the work of ministry, then I should benefit in the blessing of the ministry, Right, this isn't you, you weren't doing me a favor. As I said to the Thessalonians, you I, I could demand this from you. I can ex, I should expect this from you. Right, I, I have the right to expect from you that you would support me if I'm blessing you. This is what you're paying me to do. So you weren't doing me any favors at all. You were just um, acting out of the obligation that you have as the flock to give back something of yourself in order to support me so that I can help you flourish, right? That's, this is, this, you've, got, you've got it completely wrong. You weren't doing me any favors. Um, I had the right uh, not only to take that from you, but also the right to refuse it, right? It works, it was both. I, I, I could have demanded it, but I didn't because that was my prerogative as well. And so don't think you were doing me any favors. You were just doing what was expected. What was different in this circumstances is that I just simply didn't, um, I, I didn't accept it. But then to back all of this up, to back up this argument, he says to them, doesn't it say in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain? Now, this is a really weird verse. Don't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Paul uses this to support his case that he had the right to demand that from them. They, they were expected to support him. Now, what's the imagery here? Well, 
you know, going back to an agrarian society when you, before tractors, you have um, an ox that would pull along the plow, right? That would that would do the harvesting, the plowing um, with with an ox. Before engines were invented, the ox was the engine that was pulling the plow along. Um, if 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 I'm even getting my yeah, plowing is is what I'm talking about. So Paul says now. When an ox is pulling along the plow, um, that's hard work, right? That requires a lot of energy from the ox. Now, where is the ox's energy going to come from? Well, it's going to come from eating grain because that's what oxes eat. They need grain, food to survive. Now, you could refuse the ox the grain. You could, in fact, muzzle the ox so that it can't eat the grain. You can say, well, that's my grain. How dare you, ox, eat my grain? Get your own damn grain. I, you know, that's stop stealing from me. And so put a muzzle on the ox. Well, that's one way to prevent the ox from eating the grain. But very quickly, the ox is going to die. And then you've got nothing. Nobody's got any grain because you killed the ox. So you're an idiot. So Paul says, when I'm doing the work of ministry, I should expect to be able to be supported from the ministry because... If you don't want to feed me, then you're not going to get any ministry and we all starve. So what was the point of that? So no, you don't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. So the principle is wherever, uh, wherever the work is being done, it's expected that the one doing the work should get the support from that. I think you're clearly getting the point of this. So he draws that verse from Deuteronomy 25.4, but he actually uses it another time later on in 1 Timothy. And this is where I sort of, sort of finish up, where you've got this situation. We've talked a bit about 1 Timothy in, in other episodes, but 1 Timothy being a letter where Paul is trying to establish some principles for how to do church. This is kind of the end of Paul's ministry where he's setting up the next generation and he's establishing some practical church principles that are going to live on beyond him. So we looked last week at the... Um, at the looking after the widows, like it's really practical advice for how to run a church. So he comes to this um, situation here, which is talking about supporting the ministry, supporting those who, who are doing the work of ministry. And again, he draws in this verse of these oxes. So he says to uh, says in First Timothy five seventeen, he says the elders who direct the affairs of the church. In other words, and what seems to have happened here is that there are um, as the church has grown over the first few decades, there there seems to be some more established um, positions or, or ministries within the church that are requiring a bit more time, a lot more communities, a lot more Christians that are requiring um, some people to devote more of their time to doing the work of this ministry. And so what Paul is saying in this context is these um, these elders, these presbyteroi, need to be looked after uh, financially. If they're doing the work of the ministry, then they need to be paid. They need to be looked after. And so in order to support that point, this is what he says. He says, though the elders who direct the affairs of the church uh, well are worthy of double honour. We'll come back to that in a moment. Especially those who work whose work is preaching and teaching. Right, so these are sort of the the full time. So you know we've gone beyond um, you know Paul and Peter just traveling around preaching. What we're talking about now are the regular preachers, the ones who are um, these elders in the context of First Timothy are probably people who are looking after multiple house groups. So you've got like local leaders within the houses, but we've grown beyond that now and we've got sort of overseers of various houses who go from house to house and, and are taking care of uh, the different groups. He says those people, the ones who would, who've got the primary role of preaching and teaching and establishing doctrine within the communities, um, they deserve double honour. And he, then he goes on, for scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. So there's that verse again. So that's the sort of the Deuteronomic principle. This is the Old Testament principle being carried through into the new covenant of make sure you don't starve the ox that's doing the work of getting you the food, right? So make sure you look after that. But then he adds to this verse, he's, he's drawn on the Old Testament principle that Paul does in 1 Corinthians, but he adds to it the words of Jesus. He says, and the worker deserves his wages. This is re remembering this is before there's a New Testament, right? This is still 
There, there is no New Testament yet. Scripture for these guys is the Old Testament, and increasingly so, the words and the traditions of Jesus are starting to become Scripture at this time in church history. So the Old Testament principle, again, um, don't muzzle the ox, but also the Jesus tradition, which is that the worker deserves his wages. Now, where does this verse come from? Well, we just saw it a moment ago in Luke 10. So when you enter a house, say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eat and drink whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. It's a direct quote from Luke. But the parallel to that, the same teaching in Matthew says the same thing. It says, do not, Matthew 10, 9 to 10, says, do not Get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. So what Jesus had established when he sends out the 12 is that you should expect to be looked after. If your job, your calling is full-time ministry, then you should expect that your community is going to look after you. That's, That's just how it is. And there's precedent for that. There's principle for that in both in the Old Testament, don't muzzle the ox, um, but it's just common sense. That's just the way the world works. If you're a full-time teacher, you got to make money, you got to eat, you got to be looked after, and you can expect that that should come from the students or from those who have been blessed by the work that it is you're doing. So all of this then is, is being carried through now into the new, into the Christian community. If somebody is called, like Paul, to full-time ministry, they should then expect to be looked after. Now, as the church gets a bit older, as we see in 1 Timothy, um, there are local teachers whose role it is is to look after all of the various house groups and to make sure to establish the proper doctrine and, and consistent doctrine amongst the different houses. That requires time. So someone's got to look after that person. That's what they've been called and they've devoted their lives to doing. Now, very quickly, I just want to quick just talk about this. what is this double honor thing? What's that all about? Um, what, what, what would tend to happen in associations, in, in where there are these formal gatherings? Um, we, we've, I've talked about them before. We'll talk about them at, at different times as well. But where you would have a formal gathering, somebody would have to pay for that. So again, we're talking about meals. In, in a lot of meals, it would be the case that one person would typically pay for the meal. They would host the meal, pay for all the food, and that would be their job. That would be, um, well, that would be what they do in order to gain the honor of being the person who who pays for the meal. Okay, so you're at a meal. It's an honor shame culture. You're the one who's funded. You're the one who's paid for the meal. You're the one who's who's invited all the guests over. You're the one who's laid out all of the spread. It's only fair that that person receives more food. I mean, isn't it? Like, isn't it only fair that the person who has invested all of their time and effort and finances into making this thing happen should get more honor than the person who's just turned up and is enjoying them is enjoying the food? So that's a standard practice. And what happened in these associations, whenever they came together, the host would be honored with more food. They would get a double portion of the food. So what um, Paul is saying here is that he's drawing from this honor shame culture from these principles where if we have these gatherings and if somebody is putting in uh, extra work in order to um, to take care of this or to fund this or whatever they are doing above and beyond everybody else, they should get double honor. Now, what is the honor? Is it more food? Maybe. Um, is it more money? Who, who, it's hard to say. But in an honor-shame culture, it's just this person should get the recognition as having been the one who went above and beyond to make this thing happen in the first place. Now we might say, oh, well, what about humility? What about, you know, that doesn't really, we don't really, shouldn't really do that. But again, an honor shame, ancient Mediterranean culture, that's just good manners. That's standard, standard practice there. So what is the principle for us today? Well, probably, unfortunately, it doesn't mean that a pastor should get a pay rise and have double their pay. I'm sorry if that's uh, disappointed you there. Um, but it's, in the immediate context, it's just simply that if you have put in extra, you should get acknowledged for that. And I guess that principle in itself, um, the person who has gone above and beyond should be mentioned, should get at least an honorable mention more than everybody who just turned up is, is probably the principle there. Okay, so let's finish this thing up. 
What are the principles then for today? Well, the principle number one that's quite clear is that there are people within the Christian community who are called by God to do full-time ministry. That's their occupation. That's their calling. And their, their life now will be devoted to the everyday requirements of looking after a church or doing whatever the teaching in a college, whatever the ministry might look like, whatever God has called that person to do, full-time missionary work or all the number of different things that God would call us to do beyond the couple of hours a week that we might give as a volunteer, there are certain people within the church who have been specifically set set apart to do full-time work. That's just how the church is going to function. It requires an organization like ours requires a a, a level of full-time commitment from a certain group within the community. So that principle is very, very clear. The question then is how does that person eat? How do they survive, right? How do they look after themselves and their family and just, again, buy food and pay for the necessities in order to not die? Someone has got to pay for that. Now, if, my, if you're devoted to full-time ministry and somebody, like any sort of business, if I make goods and somebody is blessed by those goods, then they pay me for those goods so that I can provide more of those goods, right? It's just simply, it's just a simple exchange. It's how businesses work. Well, it's not any different in the church. If somebody is doing full-time ministry and people are being being blessed by that ministry, then there is a reciprocation that is expected. They need to make sure that the person who's bringing the blessing can continue to bring the blessing so that they can continue to be blessed by the blessing, Again, it's a, it's a really basic principle at work here. And so what this requires is money. It requires financial support to in, to enable that person to do that. Now, that's it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not just, okay, well, now you just expect that if you've got a pastor in a church, that, per, that pastor must be paid. There are some other things that Paul has sort of shown us here that bring a little bit of nuance to that sort of black and white, one-size-fits-all approach. The first thing, if you remember in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians were impoverished. They just simply didn't have the money to support him. And Paul says, I'm not going to take money that doesn't exist. And I'm I'm certainly not going to take the money that you would use to otherwise feed your kids, right? That's abuse. I'm just never going to do that. So there are going to be contexts where a church is a smaller church and they don't have the resources. They just genuinely don't have the resources to support a full-time minister. They still need a minister to be able to do the work, but they don't have the resources to support that person. Well, do what they can. The requirement is to simply to, to do as much as you possibly can. But in those contexts, those circumstances, there there is a need at that point for the minister to go and make tents, to go and do the leather work and to go and do the trade in order to supplement what the church is unable to to come up with. And so for smaller churches, it's not, well, you must pay your pastor. If you don't have the money, then you don't have the money. And so Paul is very clear about um, the principle in those circumstances. But on the other hand, what you'd also can't have is a circumstance where the church says, well, hey, pastor, we're paying you, so we own you. Right, you you come and go at our de- commands because if you don't, we'll just stop paying you. Right, we own you because we pay you because we um, because you, you you are only doing that because of our generosity. Well, that's also a terrible attitude. That's also totally counter to what the church is. It it simply cannot function that way, and so those circumstances as well can't just can't be tolerated. Um, you, you, you just can't have that sort of circumstance. So on the one hand, if a church can't afford you, well, that's just the way it is. But at the same time, a church should never, the people in the church should never say, well, you know, we own you because we, we pay for you. What should happen is kind of like the Macedonian situation where the Macedonians said, hey, Paul, do the ministry, we'll support you. Go and come and go as you please. Do whatever God tells you to do. We'll just give you the finances so that while you're doing the work of God, you don't have to think about where your next meal is going to come from. That's going to allow you the freedom to do the work that's required of you. That always has to be the attitude. 
we can give to you as much as we can possibly give um, with no strings attached so that you can do the work God's called you to do because we know that in doing that work, we will be blessed in return. Well, I think you get the point. I think that's sort of hopefully that's come across and, and made sense. Hopefully this has been helpful. Um, and that kind of wraps up the series. We'll, we'll unpack some of these topics in, in future episodes. Um, but for now, hopefully that's been a sort of a helpful overview of what the New Testament uh, has to say about money. Um, anyway, thank you for joining me. Next week we're going to take a go a completely different direction. We're actually going to look at suffering. We're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at what the New Testament has to say about suffering. So uh, I hope you can join me for that. But otherwise, have a great week and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.